All right. If you want to come back in, we're going to get started, ready or not. You can open up to Acts chapter 2. One thing I forgot to announce is that uh, the school has been so great allowing us to be in here all summer. We haven't had to do any setup or teardown. School starts for them August 6th. The teachers are back this week. Uh, So they did ask us to tear down today. So after the service, if you are interested, we'd love to have help just stacking the chairs and putting the pipe and drape on carts. That'd be super helpful uh, if you'd like uh, to do that. That'd be just a blessing. But uh, we're going to open up in Acts chapter 2 today, and we're going through a four-week series on the Holy Spirit. And we feel like you can't talk about the Holy Spirit without talking about Acts chapter 2. So if you want to open your Bibles, uh, this is a a really interesting story. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And suddenly the sound, like the blowing of a violent wind, came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Next slide. Now, there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each of them heard in their own language, they heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How is this? How is it that each of us hears them in our native language? So then it lists all these people that are gathered. The Parthians, the Medes, the Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors of Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. And then, amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. (laughs) After this happens, Peter goes on to preach a sermon. And as he preaches a sermon, he's declaring basically what's happening as the Holy Spirit falls. And at the end of this chapter, in verse 42, it says, Uh, this, those who accepted the message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Kind of an interesting passage, Acts chapter 2. Some of you are familiar with it. Some of you hear it. Some of you think, "Uh uh-oh, what kind of church is this? Where are we going? Uh, Just this wild story where the Holy Spirit comes. It is something that they don't really know what's happening. It sounds chaotic. It sounds violent, like this wind that comes across. People start speaking in these tongues, And there's people from all over the place gathered because it's Pentecost and they're celebrating from all over the world. And they hear the word in their own language. And they say, how can we hear these people who are speaking? They're Galileans. We hear them in our own language. What in the world is going on? This is the story, the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes and empowers the church. Some people would say that this is the birth date for the church. From here, the church is empowered to go out, this group of disciples who are following the resurrected Jesus to go out into all the world. And this is what they look back and say, here's where it all starts for the church, the birth date. And it's an interesting story 
uh, it's a story that takes place on the day of Pentecost. And that's an important detail because Pentecost is a holiday for the Jewish people. It, Pentecost means, here's what it means. It means 50 days after the Passover. So this is a, a holiday uh, for God's people that points back to a story from the Old Testament a long time ago. And for them, 50 days after the Passover, well, what happens in the Passover? The Old Testament, the story of God's people, they're enslaved in Egypt. And they're enslaved for 400 years. And for 400 years, uh, they're basically, their masters are the Egyptians. And they have to do everything that the Egyptians say. And their life is miserable. And they cry out to God time and time again, God, deliver us from these enslavers, from these powerful people that have completely controlled us. Eventually, what we know is that God, God shows up. Uh, since Moses comes onto the scene, a series of miraculous events happen where God intervenes for his people who are enslaved and they're crying out. And uh, a number of miracles happen. We know the story of the plagues. Eventually, the people of God leave Egypt. They go through the Red Sea. The Red Sea parts. They pass through the Red Sea. And as the Egyptian enslavers start following them, the Red Sea collapses. It washes away all the things that enslave them. The people emerge on the other side of the Red Sea, and they go to this mountain called Sinai. And at Sinai, they're waiting for what's next. Like, we had all these great plans. We wanted to leave Egypt. We knew we wanted to get out of here, and we did it. We got away from the Egyptians. They're no longer pursuing us. And now we're here. Now what? And as they're waiting at Sinai, God shows up. 50 days after the Passover, the first Pentecost, shows up and says, well, doesn't really say anything, shows up in this kind of mighty wind. It sounds like thunder. It sounds like a storm coming down from the mountain, and God's people are freaked out. And they say, this must be God. The power that's coming from this mountain, the sound, it has to be some sort of divine being. So they say, Moses, you should go up to that mountain and talk to that. And Moses is like, what? <laughs> So they say, we're not going up there because if we go up there, we might die. So they send their leader up, and Moses goes up. And we know that this is the story that it takes place in Exodus between chapters 19 and 34, this first Pentecost, where Moses goes up, and he, and he communes with God. And we, he receives the, tap, right, the, the, the Ten Commandments. God speaks to him, and he gives them this law, and he says, this is going to be what guides the, our people and they're going to be a certain kind of people here on earth. And God starts to give identity to his people, the nation of Israel. And they look back and say, this is where the nation of Israel is born. This Pentecost day, 50 days after the Passover, 50 days after we left Egypt, we now have an identity as a people, not just a people, but the kind of people God wants us to be. So Moses is excited. He's coming off the mountain. He's getting ready to take this message to the Israelites and say, we have this law that we're going to abide by, and God has called us to be this certain kind of people. And as Moses is coming down from the mountain, he hears what sounds like a war going on in the camp. And here's what happened. The Israelites got bored waiting for Moses. I mean, they get out of Egypt. They get out of all these miraculous things, basically deliver them from the Egyptians. They're waiting at this mountain. This crazy noise comes. Moses leaves. And as they're waiting... Someone shows up with Coronas. I don't know, but a party starts. MTV shows up. This is like the original Fry Festival. This <laughs> terrible party breaks out. Uh, there's this golden calf. There's, it's, it's every kind of like pagan party thing you can imagine. 
and it becomes so rowdy that it sounds like there's a war going on, and Moses is coming back down after communing with God with this law, and he hears the people partying, and he realizes the wickedness that has taken over his people, and he is just, he's beside himself. He grabs these faithful people in uh, this tribe called the Levites, and they end up going around the camp and getting rid of all of the people that have caused kind of the corruption. It tells us that 3,000 people lose their life in this process. And eventually, uh, the, the law comes, and they have this identity, and they have this target where they're going to the promised land, and they're told to drive out the nations, these corrupt people who are also enslaving others, and to be a new kind of people that God has created. And what we have is the birthplace of the Israelites, the first Pentecost. So if you're reading in Acts chapter 2, what you'll find is that this story sounds eerily similar to the first Pentecost story, when after the Passover, God's people leave Egypt, and they're waiting and anticipating what to do next. In Acts chapter 2, Jesus dies, rises from the dead. Fifty days later, his people are waiting. And look at just some of the details of this story, if we contrast them into two stories. Exodus chapters 19 through 34, Sinai, that people are waiting to hear from the Lord. In Acts chapter 2, the disciples are waiting to hear from God. In Exodus, in the Exodus story at Sinai, there's this loud, thunderous voice. And in Acts chapter 2, there's this violent wind that comes. In Exodus at Sinai, it's the sound of war and chaos. And in Acts, it sounds like chaos. In Exodus, the people were drunk because someone brought coronas. In Acts chapter 2, they thought they were drunk, but they weren't. The story in Exodus, 3,000 were slain by the Levites. At the end of Acts chapter 2, 3,000 are saved by Peter's message. In Exodus, they're told to drive out the nations uh, to go into the promised land. In Acts chapter 2, people from every nation are gathered, and they're called to go to the nations with this gospel message. Exodus is known as the birthplace of Israel, and Acts chapter 2 is known as the birthplace of the church. So you're reading kind of this wild story, thinking like, what in the world is going on here with the details? And you're realizing that there's this story unfolding, and then this divinely inspired author is also rewriting this story about this new kind of identity and this new kind of people and this new testament. The Old Testament, they're given the law. And in the New Testament, they're given the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. There's this new kind of identity uh, for God's people, that they were going to be a spirit-filled people. Commenting on this story, N.T. Wright says this, and it's kind of a long quote, but I think it's great. When it comes to Acts chapter 2, it says, all Christians, not only those who call themselves Pentecostalists, derive their meaning from the first Pentecost. For a first century Jew, Pentecost was the 50th day after Passover. It was an agricultural festival, but Passover and Pentecost also awaken echoes of a great story of the exodus from Egypt. When the people of Israel crossed the Red Sea and God rescued his people from slavery. Fifty days after Passover, the Israelites came to Mount Sinai where Moses received the law. Pentecost is about God giving to his redeemed people the way of life by which they must now carry out his purposes. And now Jesus has gone up into heaven in his ascension. And he is now coming down again, not with a written law carved on tablets of stone, but with the dynamic energy of the law designed to be written on human hearts. And if we want to know what this Holy Spirit does, 
It takes the law of God and it writes it in our hearts and empowers us to be God's people here and now. So for identity, the old covenant was about the law. The new covenant is about the spirit. In Matthew chapter 5, he says, I haven't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, to say this is what it looks like with flesh and blood. The Apostle Paul picks up on this in Romans 8.16, where he talks about this idea of life by the Spirit. It says, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because in Christ Jesus, the Spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. We become a Spirit-filled people, where God's presence is with us. Paul repeats this in Galatians, but here's the central point of this story. The law that Christ doesn't come to abolish, these Ten Commandments, this Torah that guide us as God's people. Uh, Christ has come to deliver it, to fulfill what the law says. Here's the central point. The law was given to show us what God desires, but the Spirit was given to give us God's desires. We have this understanding of the law. God puts it in place to show us, here's God's heart for the world. And when we abide by this law, we live in community. Humans flourish. We live as God wants us to live. But now here in the New Testament, God says, here is my Holy Spirit. It's not just going to show you what my desires are for humanity. It's going to give you my desires. You're going to be a people that have a heart with the heart of God for this world. This Holy Spirit is God's personal presence that comes and it lives in us. And it gives us God's desires for this earth. Our heart starts to break for the things that break the heart of God. Our heart is aligned. Our ambitions are redeemed to do work that God wants us to do here on this earth. The Holy Spirit is this personal presence that comes, God's presence that comes into our life, and it aligns our desires with God's desires. So we talk about this Holy Spirit, this idea that into the wild, the Spirit leads us to things that may not always uh, make sense to our neighbors because we are in step with God and we are called to do things that God calls us to do that don't always make sense to those around us. We become a unique kind of people. And I think at Sinai, that was God's desire for his people, is for you to be a unique kind of people, that you navigate this earth differently than others. Your life-giving presence in this world. And now we have this Holy Spirit that comes and gives us the desires of God. D.L. Moody, a famous pastor and author, says, You might as well try to hear without ears or breathe without lungs as, as to try to live the Christian life without the Spirit of God in your heart. We pray, come Holy Spirit, fill us with the life of heaven that we may be your people here and now. For the church, the Spirit is about this, experiencing God, having an encounter with the living Christ and experiencing God. Our hope is that here at Desert City, that when you come into this middle school cafeteria, someone mentioned to me, they're like, the boys' bathroom here always smells. I think it was my brother. I'm like, it smells like a middle school boys' bathroom. I'm like, yes. We meet in a school, and yet we believe that when we gather together, something sacred happens. We experience the living God. This Holy Spirit, God's personal presence, comes into this place. We encounter Jesus. The Holy Spirit allows us to experience God here and now. And for the early church, this was important because for the early church, Christianity wasn't just about something that they knew in their heads. It was about something that they had experienced. They had experienced the resurrection of Jesus, that death had been defeated. It was about an experience that they had that propelled them to live a certain way in this world. 
In the New Testament, they talk about all these different experiences. And one passage that we talked about last week, they described the Holy Spirit as descending like a dove, like a bird that comes down uh, in the early Gospels when Jesus gets baptized. In Acts chapter 2, as we just talked about, they describe the Holy Spirit as fire and as wind. John, in his Gospel in chapter 7, talks about the Holy Spirit as like this water. There's all sorts of different expressions of the Holy Spirit. But we experience the living God. He meets us in our place. We have different experiences. What does it mean to encounter Jesus? I would say it looks different for different people. And I would say it probably looks different for a church plant in North Phoenix, Desert Ridge, than it would look if you're in New York City or if you were in somewhere over in Europe, if you're on the continent of Africa. The church is global and diverse. We experience God, and he meets us as we are. The Holy Spirit experiences are described differently, but it's the same spirit that lives in all of us. This experience of the spirit always leads to empowerment from God. The Holy Spirit was given to empower the church. In Acts chapter 1, before the Pentecost Sunday, Jesus tells his church to wait for the spirit to come and that they will be empowered by the spirit. The word that's used there is fortis. We talked about this last week. It means strong or brave or courageous. There's power that comes with the Holy Spirit for his people. We are people who live the life of resurrection. A church should be unstoppable in this culture because we have resurrection life. We find that this empowerment takes on different forms. On 1 Corinthians 12, it talks about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We all have gifts and skills. Some of you have really mad skills, like really good at stuff. Some of you, not so much. I joke as a pastor, I'm not very talented at very many things. Um, I can't. I, I, I'm not very handy. I don't speak good, even though I'm a pastor. I don't have a lot of skills. But what I can do is gather people together that have all sorts of spiritual gifts and say, how can we work for God's kingdom here in this place? Each one of you has been empowered by the Holy Spirit with different spiritual gifts. They look different, but we need all of them. You have different passions. You have different things that, that resonate in your heart as you think about what's wrong with the world. And you've been empowered to do something about it. The Holy Spirit gives his church these supernatural gifts to work with the kingdom here on this earth. Second thing that the Spirit does with empowerment is intercession for prayer. Romans chapter 8 talks about there's times in our life where we're going through something that's so difficult that we're struggling, that we're suffering, and we don't even know how to pray. But the Spirit intercedes with us, intercedes for us. This empowerment comes from the Spirit that says, God knows exactly what you're going through. Even if no one else knows what you're going through, even if you don't even know exactly what you're going through, and when you come to God with it, God intercedes with his Holy Spirit and meets you in prayer. Some of you are going through things in life right now that you don't know how to express, whether it's, it's pain through relationships, maybe it's marital strife, maybe it's relationships with work that you're trying to struggle through and you know like you just need guidance from God, you want God to intervene to change the situation, you're not even sure how to pray. You don't know if your prayers might sound kind of selfish or indulgent, but you know that you need help. What the Holy Spirit does is it empowers us. God intercedes for us. God says, just come to me with whatever it is. The Holy Spirit intercedes. There's this power that comes. Maybe it's something um, that you're dealing with, a physical ailment, and you're sick, 
or you've got something that's ailing you. God says to bring it in front of him with prayer. The Holy Spirit intercedes and it meets us in the midst of our suffering and struggle. The third empowerment is freedom that we find in 2 Corinthians 3, 17. The Holy Spirit empowers us to free us from the things that enslave us, whether it's sin, brokenness, different kinds of addiction, different things that this world that we get caught up in that just sucks the life out of us. We find that the Holy Spirit, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we're able to experience freedom to overcome the things that are seeking to destroy our soul. There's this supernatural empowerment that comes from God that allows us to break free, break the chains off the things that enslave us. There's gifts of the Spirit, there's intercession, there's freedom. This empowerment comes from an experience with God. And then the empowerment always leads to evidence of God. Evidence of God. We would call this the fruit of the Spirit. The evidence that God is in our life. Galatians talks about this fruit in Galatians 5, and it says, that here's the fruit. The evidence that God is in your life is that your life is full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. If you've experienced God, you've been empowered by God, the evidence is that you live a life that produces this kind of fruit. We want to be a spirit-filled church, the kind of church that produces the fruit of the spirit, that we're a kind of people who are known by love and joy and peace, peace that passes understanding, that we'd be a patient people, a grace-gentle people, a grace-filled gentle people, a kind people, that we'd be faithful and that we'd have self-control. At the end of this, Paul says, against these things there is no law. We are a spirit-filled people. The Holy Spirit is something that is wild and hard to understand. And maybe you've never experienced the Holy Spirit. Maybe you've never had just God's presence come into your life and pour this kind of life into you, that you've had an experience that empowers you and the evidences of the fruit. Here's what I want us to do today as the band comes back up is I want us to, to go through kind of this physical practice, it's a spiritual practice, that says, Lord, would your presence just meet us here today? In the midst of this hot summer day in this cafeteria, would your spirit pour out on us like fresh wind, like water, and fill our soul? That we could be a certain kind of people here, the people empowered by your spirit. So as Richard comes up, I want to spend a time in reflection and prayer. And this might be kind of uncomfortable for you, um, and that's okay. We don't do this very often. Uh, but I think one of the ways that we experience God's presence is much like at Pentecost, they're waiting with anticipation for God to move among them as a church. So when we want to have this encounter with the Spirit, we come anticipating, saying, God, would you just pour your Spirit out on us? And the second thing is that we surrender the things that we're holding on to that would hinder the Spirit's work in our life. Maybe today we just need to say, we anticipate, God, that you would come, that you'd fill us with your Spirit. But before you do that, there's things that we need to surrender so that we can have your desires for this world. So as a physical act, here's what I'm going to ask that we do. If we close our eyes and if we'd hold our hands out in front of us, Hopefully we'll have our eyes closed so it doesn't look weird. But if you just put your hands out in front of you and if you would have clenched fists, 
that you would hold your fists together like you're gripping something. What I'd ask is that in, in these gripped fists, you would think of the things right now that you've been holding on to that you haven't given to God. Maybe these are things that are causing great anxiety in your life right now. Stress. Maybe it's the stress of finances. Searching for a job. Maybe it's relationships. Maybe it's things that have happened to you in the past and it's your fists are full of of bitterness and anger, pain. Maybe your fists are full of uh, some sort of addiction. It's something that you have been trying to stop, but it's corrupting you, and it feels like it's just rotting your soul. Maybe it's something of of cynicism. You've been disappointed. You've had your heart broken. And it's turned you into a cynical person. Maybe it's a a lack of faith. Maybe it's anger at God. Whatever it is that's in your fists, I would just ask now that you would just open them up. Release whatever it is to God if you're ready, to just surrender that to him and to let go, to allow the weight to just fall off your shoulders. And then that you would take your palms into the air to receive. And here's my prayer for us, church. Lord, that your Holy Spirit would just come. that we'd experience the goodness of your presence today. That your Holy Spirit would give us your desires, Lord. That you would give us your heart. Lord, that you would meet us in the ways that we're tired and worn out. That you would give us relief from pain. That you would give us relief from the burdens that we carry. that we'd experience your presence today, Lord. Lord, we ask that you would empower us too with your spirit. You give us just supernatural energy to do your will, to be your people. Lord, that this would be evident by the fruit of the spirit in our lives. That we'd be a people known for love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. That we'd be a spirit-filled church, Lord. We surrender and anticipate you moving among us. In your son's name we pray. Amen. We're going to close today with communion. Communion for us represents God's work for us in this world. We take a piece of bread and we break the bread open. The bread represents the body of Christ that was broken open on the cross. And we take a cup of juice 
and we drink. The juice represents the blood of Christ that was shed on the cross. We believe that through the breaking open of Christ's body on the cross, pouring out of his blood, sin and death are conquered. And here at Desert City, we practice open communion. We say, if you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to the table. Today, with a fresh encounter of the Holy Spirit, may you come to the table and encounter Jesus. Let me pray one more time. Lord, again, we thank you for this church community, this body of Christ, this representation of your people here and now. Today, Lord, I ask that you would meet us at the table. Continue to do your work in our life with your Holy Spirit. In your son's name we pray. Amen.